Thank you, Nell. Uh, we'll be in our Second Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Our deacons are going to walk the aisle to uh, gather any prayer slips or visitor card. We would love to make a connection with you. If you have your Bible, again, we'll be in Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible uh, on you, there should be one uh, in the back of the pew in front of you. If you do not own one, please take that one. That way you will have one for yourself. Second Timothy chapter Three. If you are like most people, I would imagine you probably set a New Year's resolution or two. Um, uh, it seems to be uh, every year we might have one or two goals or resolutions in mind, and, and I was interested to see what the most common ones were for 2022. I was disappointed because they do not have that yet. However, I can tell you what the most common resolutions are for 2021. The top five New Year's resolutions in order. Exercising more, losing weight, saving more money, improving my diet, and pursuing a career ambition. And then just a, a bonus, number six, was spending more time with my family. And I thought number five and number six maybe should be sw- swapped there. Uh, but those, those are the top six New Year's resolutions for 2021, and I would imagine that you may maybe found one of yours on that list. And what we also tend to do from time to time, is even, if, even if, if our list doesn't look exactly like that, chances are we might have something along the lines of, I want to read my Bible more. I want to spend more time in prayer. I want to read scripture uh, more. I want to memorize scripture more. I want to be uh, more kind, more caring, more patient. Uh, one of mine, for, for one of my personal goals for this year was to listen more and talk less. Uh, and maybe you find yourself there as well. But whatever our, what our, our goals might be, I think one of the most important things that you and I can do is to commit ourselves to the study of scripture. And I can't think of a better way for us to begin 2022 than by, by unpacking just exactly what that means. Historically, Christians have always been a people of the book, that we believe that there is a personal God who has revealed himself in what we call the Bible, that God is not silent, God has spoken, and we can know what this God is like because he has revealed himself. It's, just not, it's not just words on a page, it is God's very revelation of himself. Think about, uh, with me, think about the number of different ways that you take in information on a regular basis. Maybe it's a, a number of different mediums, such as radio, television, the iPhone, or maybe your tablet in general. How about different forms of information? Maybe it's movies, music, shows, Netflix, Whatever these mediums that we spend, by, by which we get these, the information from, the more time we spend with those mediums, whatever they happen to be, they, they have a, a shaping effect on us. The more time we listen to the radio, the more time we listen to the news, watch TV shows, the messages that they are conveying, the more time that we spend with them, they end up affecting who we are. It's not that we're just dispassionate, disconnected listeners, but the more time we spend with them, they have an effect on how we think and how we move. And so my my hope is that today, this this is my goal, my goal for us today, that for all of us in this room and for those live streaming, that we will better understand that God's word, scripture, is the ultimate source of truth. It's the ultimate source of truth. It's the ultimate source of hope that you and I could ever have. 
We live in a world full of discord and dissonance, brought to us by the news, brought to us by politics, brought to by well, any, any number of things that bring conflict. And in contract to that, in contract to that discord, in contract to that dissonance, scripture is the melody, scripture is the harmony that you and I are desperately craving. It's pleasing to our ears and our hearts. And so my hope is that we will be like the, the writer of Psalm 119 who says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. May that be the same. Uh, may that be said of us as well. Glenn Scrivener put it this way. He said, The scriptures are God-breathed, written to give us the kiss of life. They are arranged to water our parched souls. They are food for the famished as they offer us Christ. And therefore, we come to the Bible not as a spiritual offering, but in desperate need of receiving. We read scripture not to impress God, but that through his gospel he might impress us. We approach our daily devotion as beggars asking our gracious Father to feed us again with the bread of life. It is not just words on a page. That the very Bible that you and I have in our hand or on our phone, our screens right now, it's God. It, it are the words of God Himself. So let's turn to our text again this morning, Second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so what I thought might be the best way to approach this text this morning is to to kind of piecemeal it and look at each section and see where we come to the end of it. So the first thing we see here is that he said that all Scripture... Now, Paul uh, would have had in mind the Old Testament here at the New Testament and the letters and the books that would make up the New Testament are still being written, uh, most of which are still being written at this time. But we are certainly justified. And when we say all Scripture, it's not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And the reason for that, if you look at verse 15, look at verse 15 in the same chapter. He says, he writes, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are to make you wise for salvation through Christ, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. And so all scripture means both Old and New Testament, uh, New Testament, that we as Christians do not believe that there is some God of the Old Testament and then like, maybe he was mean and nasty and vengeful and then there's this nice, kind, uh, 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 fairy-like God of the New Testament who's not so mean. So we believe that there is one God over both books. And there's one cohesive message. And if you, spend, if you spend time with Scripture, you'll find that there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, what we would call cross-references between the Old and the New Testament. And what they are, it's it, it, it painting one big picture of one storyline, of one narrative. That the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and the New, and the New Testament points right back at him. It's one continuous story. And we would do very well to not separate the two as if they were two disconnected books. So it's one scripture, one total totality of scripture. But we also see here that it's breathed out by God. This is a really interesting phrase here. It's the only time that we see this word showing up in scripture at all. And the idea behind this book, excuse me, this word, that breathed out means inspired, that God inspired this book. 
Now the question might be, well, what does it mean by inspiration? You, you might be more the artistic type, whether you're a musician or a painter. Uh, is that what he's talking about here? That, that there's the, like a painter standing in front of a canvas and decides that he's in a, in a certain mood and so he wants to paint a sunset? Could he just saw a nice sunset? Or maybe he's in a darker mood, he wants to paint something a little darker. He just goes along with what he's inspired. I don't think that's quite what's going on here. And, and there's some reason for that. Actually, before I share that, though, I, I'm reminded of Vincent Van Gogh. He said, I dream of painting, and then I paint my dream. I dream of painting, and then I paint my dream. So that, is that the kind of inspiration that's going on here? When Paul's writing Second Timothy, it's it basically saying, I, I'm thinking about these things in my sleep, and now I'm going to go write them down. Oh, Jerry Seinfeld, when, when he, uh, he still does stand up, but he, early in his career, he would keep a notepad by his, uh, by his bed, and he would wake up in the middle of the night with a joke on his mind, and so he'd write it down, because that way, otherwise, he would forget it. Is that the kind of inspiration that's going on here? I, I don't think that it is. I don't think that, it's the, that the author of Scripture was just caught in the moment, and they found something to write with, and they just wrote down whatever they thought. That the Bible isn't just a collection of random thoughts by random people. Otherwise, because if it were, there would be no cohesive story. There would be no cohesive overarching narrative at all. But when we look at what Scripture is, the Bible is made up of 66 books. We've written over, of course, about 1,500 years. There's about 40 different authors all contributing to this book, most of whom did not know of each other at all. But written in three different languages, written on three separate continents, all different uh, sorts of vocations and areas of life. We have shepherds, we have kings, we have prophets, we have fishermen, we have military leaders, all contributing to this one book. There are different genres. You read history, you read poetry, you read letters, like we're reading right, right now, read narrative. And every single part of scripture, I would, I would argue, and I think justifiably so, I would contend it's all pointing to Christ. And Joe, the skeptic in me, it should, if I'm a skeptic today, I'm saying, okay, how do I explain that? How do I explain that 66 book with this wide range of authors over 1,500 years before the printing, well before the printing press, before social media, how is it that all of these books, all of these letters, are all essentially saying the same thing about the same person in some way, shape, or form? If I'm a skeptic, that's a hard one for me to explain away. That's what we have in Scripture. I would argue that such unity can be, can be found, or such unity is possible only if God inspired the works. But again, what does it mean to say that God inspired the works. I think an appropriate understanding is not to, to say, there, there's one extreme, which is to say that God basically took control of the authors and they were just meat puppets, meat pencils, and he just wrote down what he wanted to say and that's it, and they had no, um, uh, no part of that at all. I don't think that's the case. That when you look at the different books of Scripture, you find that they often had goals in mind, that there were personalities in place. So Luke, for example, who wrote his gospel, also wrote Acts. Luke was a historian. And so if you read the beginning of Luke and you read the beginning of Acts, Luke flat out says that he went around as like a reporter. As an, and he, wanted, he, he, wasn't, he didn't actually meet Jesus, but he wanted to talk to the people who did know Jesus. And so he goes around like, a, like an investigative reporter and gets all the information he can and puts it all together for his audience. 
Matthew had a, a very clear purpose as well that Matthew was writing to a Jewish people. And Matthew basically wanted to show all the Jewish people and prove to them that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. That the Messiah that they've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is finally here. It's one of the reasons why just in, in the, uh, at least 13 times in Matthew's gospel, he says something like this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This was to fulfill this or that. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. Why? Because the Jews read the Old Testament. That's his goal. That, that's his purpose is to convince the Jews and by extension us that Jesus is the Messiah. And so God worked in and through these authors to, con- to, to write down his message, but he also left their personalities and their proclivities intact. Because God inspired it, it contains its very words. That God is not silent. That if you want to know what God is like, maybe you want to know what God is like this morning. You look to scripture. He has spoken. And sometimes when people say that they wish God would talk to them, they like to hear his voice. I heard someone one time say it this way. If you want to hear God's voice, you want to hear what God sounds like, you take your Bible and you read it out loud. That's what he sounds like. But because it's inspired by God, there's at least two things I think we we can take away from that. Because it's inspired by God, we know and we can trust and we can rest that it will never change because God never changes. His word remains the same. And it's fixed, it's steadfast. Unlike, for example, our culture. Cultural standards come and go, but God's word remains the same. There's a really interesting book I read um, a while back called uh, White Guilt by a guy named Shelby Steele. And Shelby Steele, he was born in 1946, and he grew up in an era of significant racism and discrimination because of, because of what he looked like. And he would draw, and, he, and in the opening pages of his book, he writes about how he was um, driving somewhere and he was listening to the radio. And at this time, it was right in the middle of uh, what was going on with, with Bill Clinton and the issues that he was having in the, in the 90s. And, in, and Steele talks about how he compares Clinton and Eisenhower. And he writes about how Eisenhower, when he was in office, allegedly used racial slurs. And so he looks at Eisenhower and he said, there's, there's no proof of this, but it's been said about that. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But he said, he, what, he, what he knows is that if Eisenhower had done what Clinton had done, namely with, Lewin, uh, with, with, uh, with Lewinsky and his marital, marital infidelity, that he, Eisenhower never would have survived that, being unfaithful to his wife, being sexually promiscuous. What he also knows is that Clinton never would have gotten away with using racial slurs. But, they eat, but he knows that he's listening to the radio and people were calling in, again, this was during the Clinton one, and people were calling in to the radio show and they were excusing Clinton for what he did. It's, it's his own private business, it doesn't affect him being a president, just, just live and let live. And what Steele notes is that either one, either man, never would have survived the scandal of the other one. That it was just how things were. Back in the 50s and the 60s, using racial slurs was more acceptable than, than it certainly is now. 
back in, in the 90s and certainly now, it, it's morally acceptable to be unfaithful to your wife. It's, it's maybe, maybe it's frowned upon, but we can make excuses for it. And so what he notes is that the standards of the culture, the standards of the society have completely flip-flopped. In one era, this is okay. In, one, in another era, it is not okay. He notes that Eisenhower never would have survived the scandal, and if he had done the same thing that Clinton did, he wouldn't have lasted the week. He says this. He said, the moral relativism of one era with the puritanism of the other. Race simply replaced sex at the primary focus of America's moral seriousness. It's not, what, what, it's not, it's not fixed. It just moves along. In one era, this is okay. In another era, this is okay. It's just always constantly in flux. Cultural standards change and they quickly evolve. If you can sit down, if, think back with me, just in our own society, how quickly things have changed. We, we, are, we are using language today that literally would have been nonsensical just a few years ago. Things change so quickly. And if the standards of the culture are always changing and we're grounding our, all, our own moral judgment in that culture, then we're always going to be changing. Not only did the message of the Bible not change, it's timeless, but because it's inspired by God, we can rest knowing that it's true. But it's not just wishful thinking, but it's actually true. There are different ways of understanding the world, and there's different answers to fundamental questions, such as, why am I here? It's one of my favorite questions to ask. Why am I here? That's a wonderful question, I think, to ask on, on uh, as we start a new year. In 1988, Life magazine contacted uh, a number of celebrities, uh, athletes, writers, and um, religious figures, and they asked the question, why are we here? It's a really interesting hodgepodge of opinions. But uh, writer Charles Bukowski, who died in uh, 94, he wrote this. For those who believe in God, most of the big questions are answered. But for those of us who can't readily accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone-written. We adjust to new conditions and discoveries. We are pliable. Love need not be a command or faith a dictum. I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, state, and our educational system. We are here to drink beer. We are here to kill war. We are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. That is quite a message. And I wonder if he would have said the same thing in the midst of COVID-19 with all the suffering that it brought. A few years later in 2011, Stephen Hawking, the famed scientist, um, he always had, uh, he had ALS, he was diagnosed with ALS at a very young age, and so lived a lot longer than I think anybody expected him to. Uh, but because he lived a lot longer than anybody expected him to, he always had death in the back of his mind. And, they, and he was interviewed by The Guardian, which is a um, significant uh, newspaper overseas. But he would asked about uh, death in general, and what happened after you die? Um, uh, Hawking, with a, a militant atheist, very outspoken about that. He said this. He said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. 
He would ask, why are we here and what should we do? He responded, he said, we should seek the greatest value of our action. We should seek, so he'd ask, why are we here? What should we do? We should, this is his answer. We should seek the greatest value for our action. It's a really interesting statement. Now, what he would, what he mean by that, if you read the rest of the interview, what he means by that is you should do whatever it takes to keep society going. That's what, whatever it takes to, to contribute to society, to, to keep society going, that's what gives you uh, a good, that's what, how you know what a good thing is to do. But then a question might, rate, might, might be reasonably asked, well, which society? The Nazi society? The one where we kill millions of Jews or the one we don't kill millions of Jews? Which society? The one where, where we do enslave people because of the color of their skin or the one where we don't enslave people on the, because of the color of their skin? Which society and why? And says who? Those are... I would have loved to have heard his answer to that. Why are we here? Why am I here? Well, Christianity has a much different answer than that. But the Bible tells us that we're here because there's a personal God who created us out of love. That we have intrinsic worth, intrinsic value that cannot be taken away. John, John 3, verse 16, which is a beautiful verse, is, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And these are two entirely different ways of understanding the world. So ultimately, you and I are all being influenced by something. The question is, what is it? What is it that is influencing our minds and guiding and shaping our hearts? May it be said that we were, be, we were people of the, word, of the word. If you look at the news, the common mantra in the news, if it bleeds, it leads. And so much of the news, no matter where you watch, so much of the news isn't, if, you, if we're being honest, so much of the news isn't reporting, it's just opining. It's just sharing opinions. It's just sharing thoughts. Social media by which most of us, I would imagine, the majority of us use in some way, shape, or form. Social media is designed, intentionally designed, to keep your attention and keep you uh, plugged in. Sean Parker, if you're a millennial like myself, or maybe a Gen X, Sean Parker uh, was the guy who invented Napster. If you don't know what Napster was, that was the way we could illegally download music when we were teenagers and make mixed CDs and listen to those on our, on our, in our car. And uh, that was a whole other thing. But Sean, uh, Sean Parker also was one of the co-founders for Facebook. In an interview about this, he said that early on, one of the driving questions in designing Facebook was this. How do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? That was the driving question. And so everything they did, every, every business decision they made behind Facebook and a lot of the other apps that are, are available today, it designed with, the, with that question in mind. How do we keep your attention? When I was in college, I drank a lot of uh, black tea. I had a little electric kettle in my room. I would take the kettle and put in, I had a little sink. I'd put the water in there, let it heat for a few moments and drink my, and drink my delicious English breakfast uh, black tea. 
what happens, you take the tea, you put it in the mug, and, and over the course of a few moments, the, the hot water allows the tea to seep out all the, the, the nutrients and, and the delicious flavor that I loved. And, and what I'm hoping is that, and for myself absolutely, is that scripture would be what is seeped into my heart. That just as the tea is seeped into the mug, that scripture would be seeped into my heart, and that because of that, my heart would be shaped, my heart would be formed, my mind would be guided by the word of God. That God's word is inspired, it is God-breathed, and it is profitable for four things here. Let's get to the text. Four things. Number one, teaching. It's beneficial for teaching. That we read God's word to learn. That learning begins when we admit, we realize and admit that we don't have all the answers and there are things that we don't know or it's just simply wrong. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who'd ever been as wrong about something as me. That we often get things wrong. And it's that, it's that understanding that we often get things wrong. We can come to the text of scripture and say, God, teach me what I don't know. Just as if we want to learn how to be better at photography, playing music, fixing cars, playing spades, or whatever else it might be, we need to turn to Scripture to learn as well. And this requires humility because it's an acknowledgement that we don't have all the answers. And isn't that annoying? I can't tell you how many times I've been in a conversation with my wife or with a friend and there's something that we're talking about and it's just totally, you know, it's just regular stuff and we can't remember what it is. And so what do we do? Pull out our phone and we Google it. It used to be like, oh, well, oh well, I guess I, I, guess I won't know. But no, now we can't, we can't do that. We have to know. And so we pull out our phone and we Google it or whatever else it may be or text somebody. If I truly want to learn more about God, I will make time for his word. It's that simple. If I want to know more about God, I will make time for his word. And unfortunately, we often don't think it's worth the time. We live busy lives. We live very hectic lives. And so because of that, they get pushed, pushed off to the side and say, I need to get to this, this, and that. And then if I have time, I will get to God's word. Martin Luther said this about prayer, but I think it applies to this as well. He said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. He didn't say, I have so much to do, so I'm going to do all that stuff first, and then if I have time, I'll get, to, I'll get to prayer. He said, I have so much to do. My day is so full. I've got so much going on, I can't, I can't even move without spending time in, in prayer. What if we took that sort of approach to Scripture intake? I have so much to do, I must spend time with God first. If it's the case that God exists and made it for himself, which I would argue that it is, what then could be more important than for us to dedicate time to knowing our creator each and every day? That the creator of the universe has invited us to read his word. We may look at it as a chore, which is a temptation from time to time, but it's an invitation to return to the source of life itself. What might we learn? We might learn that God exists, that we're not here by accident. We might learn that there is a hope, a true fixed hope, a hope that's not grounded or based on the success of the stock market or the White House. 
because God told us in his word that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. So we, learn, so we read to learn. We also read for reproof. The word here is the idea that to state that someone had done wrong. Well, that doesn't sound very fun. Who wants who want to be told you've, been some, you've done something wrong? But we see here this is, one of, this is one of the reasons by which Scripture and Scripture intake is beneficial, is to be told that we have blind spots. That God's word tells us where we have fallen short, it shares with us the bad news, and we're confronted with the living God, and we do that by reading his word. That our learning and our intake should not be just for getting more knowledge, just for the sake of getting knowledge, just to simply know things, just to, to flex your intellectual muscles whenever you're having a conversation with somebody. But our intake of scripture should reveal to us where we fall short because we most certainly do. Jared talked a few moments ago about the Pharisees and the scribes, and, they, and, and man, by, by outward appearances, they had it all going. That, that the Pharisees memorized 613 laws of the Old Testament. And then they said, you know what? We can do better. We're just going to make up some more. That's what they did. They had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. How's that for Bible drill? They had all this stuff memorized, and Jesus calls them out and saying, you're not getting it. There's a disconnect between the head and the heart. That when we encounter God, we're shown where we're wrong, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to know that we don't know everything. Scripture often redirects us from what we thought was right, whether it's in regard to how we treat others, whether it's in regard to sexual ethics, whether it's in regard to to any number of things. It corrects us, points it to the truth. And unfortunately, sometimes we tend to to not spend as much time on the part that we don't agree with. We should, you know, I I don't don't know about that. This stuff about about Jesus being the fountain of living water, that sounds nice. I like that. But this other stuff, mm, uh, maybe, maybe he was wrong about that. And to that, I love how Tim Keller says it. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. One of the best things for us that can happen to us is to be confronted of where we are falling short and encountering God and his word does just that. That a wonderful thing happens when we get our eyes off of ourselves and on to the living God. Some years ago, C.S. Lewis read a book called Screwtape Letters. And if you've not read it, I would highly encourage it. If you're not, if you're not familiar with it, it's a book, it's a fictional book about these two demons talking to each other. You have this elder demon who's been around for a while, and he's writing these letters to his nephew uh, demon, whose who's main job is to go up to the earth, and he assigned a Christian to basically kind of pull off the path. And so each chapter is a separate letter, and it's absolutely brilliant. I believe Lewis said it was one of his, it was the most difficult book to read. And so from the vantage point of the demon, this is what he says. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. If this fails, you must fall back on a subtle misdirection of his intention. Whenever they are att- attending to the enemy, that is God, himself, we are defeated but there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him toward themselves. And how often is that the case? 
where our eyes are fixed only on ourselves, that we're so distracted by phones, by video games, by social media, by news, by politics, that we don't realize that there's a world outside of ourselves with hurting people. A confrontation with God ultimately humbles us, much like Isaiah chapter, uh, when Isaiah meets him, uh, God and says, I am ruined. We're told that we've done wrong, but God doesn't leave it there. Imagine with me that you were going to the doctor, and the doctor said that you have cancer, inoperable cancer, and gives you a pat on the back and says, okay, I'll see you later. I got, I got another patient coming in. I need you to leave. That, that would be awful. That would be terrible. That would lead to despair. God doesn't do that. God tells us the bad news. He tells us what we need to hear, but then we also see, receive correction. We, we receive reproof, but then if you keep reading in this verse, we also receive correction. He gives us the bad news, but he also gives us the good news. That the orientation, uh, when we're corrected, we're given the, the next step, how we, how we should respond the orientation of our hearts should change. That because our hearts are deceitfully wicked, because our hearts can so easily deceive our, our, our own selves, a wonderful, beautiful prayer to pray to God, God, change my heart. Help me not to lie to myself, which is so easy to do. Once we're confronted with the reality of our situation, we're called to make changes, but the great thing that we see in Scripture is that when God gives command, he doesn't say, hey, do this and go figure it out. But he says, hey, do this, and I'm going to empower you to do so. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, also written by Paul, says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so this modification, the, the, the changes aren't simply to get on God's good side. And, and, and that's what you think this morning, then that's the entirely wrong, different way of thinking it. The, the motivation for being obedient to God is not to get God on your side, but rather because you love God and you want to make him known. If I think that if I, if I do certain things, then God will bless me. So if I read my Bible, if I spend time in prayer, if I, if I help all the people I can help, if I give money in the offering plate, if I do this, if I do that, then God will like me, then God will bless me. It's not, it's not God you want, it's just his stuff. It's just the things that you think he can give you. But a real, true understanding is to, to work for God because you love God. Finally, training in righteousness. That it's beneficial for training in righteousness. That the word training here in, in, in the original uh, Greek is better understood as teaching, better understood as instruction or shaping. It's related to the word pedagogy, which we, we're familiar with when it comes to education. There's a form of instruction going on here. There's a a goal to this. That God's word is beneficial for shaping its readers in righteousness, which is to say living a life that pleases God with the right motives. That when we take in God's word and we meditate on it, we become more and more like the author of Scripture. And so a question for us is, if I've been walking with God for a while, does my life show it? Can people, other people see Christ in me? Do I love well? Do I forgive as I've been called to? Do I treat people with, with the respect and kindness that they so rightly deserve? 
when we get when we when we don't get along with somebody, are we more prone to gossip about them or pray for them? What's the purpose of all this in verse 17? What's the purpose? We see the purpose here in verse 17 that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Much like a moth turning into a butterfly, marinating in scripture is the means by which we become more and more like Christ. That is, that is much like John, John the Baptist who says, less of me, more of him. It shaped us into the image of Christ and because we're then more like Christ, we're able to make much of him in all that we do. Ultimately, it's the reading, it's the taking in, it's the marinating in scripture of that, that reshapes our hearts. Again, we are all being influenced, we are all being catechized by something. And the question is, what is it? What directs our hearts? I love how James Smith put it. He said, to be human is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey toward the destination of your dreams. You can't not bet your life on something. You can't not be headed somewhere. We live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. The place we unconsciously strive toward is called our goal or our end. The question is, what is directing your heart? We all have an end. We all have a goal. And there are words that we hear. There are words that we live by. May we be a people who live by the words of Scripture. In John chapter 6, Jesus does this incredible miracle where he feeds thousands of people probably at least 15,000, if not more. And he feeds these thousands of people with two fish and a handful of bread. And he spends some time talking in the rest of that chapter. He walks on water, which is another incredible miracle. And at the end of that chapter, he, he had a number of the disciples fall away. Not the 12 that were with him, but the other disciples that were following him that would go with him from place to place. And because he's saying some very difficult things, a number of those disciples say, we, we, can't, we can't follow you anymore. And they left. And so Jesus then at that moment turned to the 12 and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter says one of the most beautiful things in scripture. He says, to respond, when Jesus said, are you going to leave too? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We sing a song here every once in a while. It's one of my favorite songs that we sing. Where else could we go? You alone have the word of eternal life. You alone. And so this year, may we be a people who truly believe that. Where we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who had the words of eternal life. Because everywhere else that we look for answers, it's going to leave us hanging. It's going to leave us wanting because it can't give us what we want. It's only in Jesus that we find words of eternal life, which is what you and I all want. So may we be a people shaped by those very words. May we dive into scripture and be shaped and have our hearts shaped by it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. It is challenging that is edifying, it's convicting. Father, I pray that you would give us a desire to know you deeply, 
to love you deeply, that you would help it to see that all the alternative um, sources out there will ultimately leave us uh, wanting more, ultimately leave us hanging. Jesus alone had the word of eternal life. So I pray that we would have a heart for you, a heart for your word, and a heart to get to know you more. And so may we have a hunger for you. May you draw, your, draw us to yourself. And may we find our rest in you and you alone. We thank you that you're a God who hears us, that you are not distant, that you are not absent. But that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we can approach you in confidence and in boldness. And we thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.